0: Hey there, and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge. I'm your host, Dan, and I'm joined in our Zoom studio by- I'm Rachel. And I'm Mike. Mike, where are you from? Where might people have heard you from before? Well, you know, I'm in Bay Ridge.
1: I'm a hyper guy myself, but I did run for Congress in uh, 2018, so I did make the rounds. And-
2: uh, Mike, you're being very modest. You've been very involved in progressive politics for quite a while in Bay Ridge. And especially over the summer, you had some very choice things to say.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the events that triggered one of the largest civil rights movements in our country, the death of George Floyd and of Breonna Taylor, really got to me partially because of what I had done with my own life. I'm a former police officer with the NYPD. I spent 10 and a half years there. Prior to that, I was a paramedic for close to a decade. I spent the last three years as a SWAT paramedic. I was a nationally certified tactical medic. I had trains with multiple different SWAT teams. So this was in Michigan where I did that. Detroit Metro SWAT, I was certified with the U.S. Parks Police, SWAT Medical Tactics. I uh, co-founded the first uh, SWAT medical program in West Michigan. I founded the first uh, pre-hospital emergency canine program in the state of Michigan for dogs used in SWAT operations and in bomb dogs, things like that. I'd also graduated a police academy in Michigan as well as graduating the academy here in the NYPD. So Having the background that I did and having had the experiences that I did, dealing with a lot of the suffering that people had really brought to the surface this year. I'd seen that and I felt that as a former police officer, as a a white police officer, having been on the other side of this, that I had a lot of things to say about it.
2: So, yeah, in terms of your connections to the community, you know, not only do you have a lot of involvement in the different progressive groups, Bay Ridge Democrats, you actually were working with the Assembly for a while. Those two sides of the policy and the practical experience, I think, is why we were so interested in having you come in and talk to us and talk to our listeners about some of the different challenges that we face with the NYPD, some of the different challenges we face in Something that you termed the police service rather than the police force. That's quite a distinction between a service and a force.
1: I mean, when we talk about what the NYPD is, it is a service to the community. You have to start with the problem that if you have two different groups of people and they both see a police officer standing on a corner, one might feel safer having that police officer on the corner that police officer means something different to somebody else who may see that as a threat, who may say, where are my children right now? Because I'm concerned that I see that police officer on the corner. So when you have these really disparate attitudes towards what it represents and what their actual goals are as a department, then that's a real problem. That's not just a problem with community outreach. That's an inherent problem in the system. This summer, I think one of the things that they touched upon was the fact that we were seeing great inequity in the criminal justice system. It's been there. That is baked into the cake, and we're trying to unbake and separate all the ingredients. But you always have this kind of flashpoint that turns the conversation that says, you know what, that's it, enough. I've had it. It seems like we've been there multiple times, but it felt different this year. It felt more sustainable, and it felt more, I hate to say, widely accepted. One group's pain shouldn't have to be validated by everybody else to be real. But unfortunately, what happened this year is more people started to at least recognize that, yes, this is happening. This is happening every single day in every single part of our country, that it's not just the police system, it's the criminal justice system as a whole, it's the education system as a whole, it's the healthcare system as a whole. There are unequal outcomes across the board for large populations of our society black people, brown people, Latino. And once you start looking at that, then you can say, okay, what can we do? A lot of what happened this summer is aspirational. You want the killing to end. You want people to be treated equally. So you start with those aspirational goals, but then you move to what could we do here? And now this summer, we saw the clashes between the NYPD and the protesters out there. We saw the reaction of the police to the protesters focusing all of the manpower on civil rights marches and ignoring actual looting that was going on in stores and in neighborhoods where people's livelihoods were being taken away this kind of misperception of where you need to lump all your resources, the aggressive taxes, the NYPD that they used, the violation of targeting attorneys. And when you have a legal observer who are clearly marked as such, the press going after journalists who are clearly identified and do have identification that it does There was a lot of human rights violations that took place this summer. And I didn't say that. The court said that. And a lot of other groups had said that as well. It was unacceptable. It was unacceptable especially when we're looking at our relationship and trying to analyze and change our relationship between the department and the communities that they serve.
0: It does sound like police as a service, it's become less of a service and more of a culture. You're unique in that you've gone through multiple police training regimens. You went through in Michigan, as you said, and you've gone through the New York City NYPD police training Can you talk about the differences between those? Because I can't imagine that they're the same.
1: They're they're not. And, you know, the training in a state will change. Like the NYPD's training is different than what is the bare minimum police requirements for the state of New York. They have a certain amount of hours per section that they want you to complete. And it's up to the department to either fill that up or make it larger. Now, I want to also say that the training I went through in Michigan was in the year 2000. And the training that I went through in the NYPD was a 2002 academy. So I have spoken with police officers to get an update on what their curriculum is like now and also the updates to the patrol guide. But my experiences are just from back then was that the Michigan training that I received was wholly superior in almost every single way than the training I received in the NYPD. And I mean that in a sense of the requirements for how much of the law you needed to be proficient in, not get a bare minimum score, but really be able to thoroughly digest, discuss, and be able to understand when you're confronted with something in front of you to try to determine whether or not a law has been broken and whether or not you have the right to place someone under arrest, detain them. There was a lot more time spent on that. We spent a lot more time on criminal procedure, that is to say, using the courts, and a lot more time, surprisingly, on firearms training. I know that a lot of people want the police to shoot the gun out of somebody's hand, or why didn't you shoot him in the leg? I mean, it's laughable, it's not laughable, it's not feasible. That just doesn't happen. Most gun battles take place at a very short distance, I'm talking three feet, five feet, in near total darkness, and last one to two seconds. They're not long confrontationals. It's not TV. Nobody's, you know, (laughs) again, that's your actual sniper at a a scene. There's not a lot of that sharpshooting going on. I don't have recent statistics, but I remember one year... Recently, the statistics were the actual shots that were fired by officers in the city only struck their targets like 4% of the time. Does that mean that they're bad shots? Meh. It also means that in real life, it is very difficult to exchange shots with somebody and to hit a moving target from, you know, whatever distance while you're moving. There are a lot of variables. You can mitigate that, though, actually with better firearms training. I have personally worked with officers in the NYPD who couldn't shoot a gun not just couldn't shoot it in the sense that they were accurate, they didn't know how to handle their weapon appropriately. I have done many verticals in buildings. Doing a vertical means that you go you know, up and down the staircase, you're supposed to take the elevator to the top and walk down. And I've entered buildings and gone up staircases with guns held at my back because they don't know how to hold it down, because they're not holding it properly, because they haven't built that muscle motor memory to really be careful with that gun. And uh, we had that situation. Unfortunately, it was a tragic situation in the housing when a housing project in New York City where two cops were doing a vertical and they were surprised because the door opened at the top of the stairs and the officer had his finger on the trigger and his gun up, pointed in front of him and let a round out. That was Akon Gurley. And what happened in that situation was negligence. That wasn't an accident, it was preventable. The training I had in Michigan, I shot every other day for the entire length of the academy. So for a period of six months, a little bit more than six months, every other day, I put thousands of rounds to that gun, learned how to properly operate it safely, learned how to clear any misfires or any type of problems with the gun. When I got to the NYPD, I had already been thoroughly certified in that, and I found that their training is fairly lacking in that. They don't spend a lot of time at the range, not nearly enough to become proficient. And you need to be proficient. You have a weapon in your hand that can kill somebody to hit the largest center mass target. That's what all police officers are trained to do. They're not trained to shoot at the head or the arms or the legs. They're trained to shoot at the largest part of the body because that's the largest percentage that you can hit. You're also trained to shoot until the threat has stopped. Now, when they teach firearms training, one of the things that they do is the shoot, don't shoot scenario where they try to stress when you should be using your firearm. One of the things that is very difficult to legislate is when an officer can use their firearm because every incident is different and every incident can escalate in a moment's notice to where you would need to use deadly force. However, one of the things I don't think they spend enough time on is firearms discipline, is not using your weapon, is finding alternatives to pulling your gun And we saw the incidents with Jacob Blake, where you had two officers on scene, both with their guns drawn, while Jacob Blake walked away from them. Because they had a gun in their hand, because they chose at that moment to not think of any other tactics, they were left with an inability to actually prevent Jacob Blake from walking anywhere, from restraining him, from using any other method of stopping him, except using their weapon. It was unacceptable. It was bad training. And we need to really focus, when we talk about firearms training, of not using your
0: firearm. What does the NYPD look for? Like what are the requirements to get in?
1: You take the police officer examination as a civil servant position. You score high enough in that. You have to have a minimum of 60 college credits or 2 years full-time military, which satisfies the education requirement. I find that to be wholly inadequate. When we talk about what could we do right now to improve the department is starting from your hiring practice and actually building a more professional police department. And by professional I mean critical thinkers. I just spoke to a police officer who just graduated out of the last academy. And he spoke about the fact that a lot of recruits were taking online uh, FEMA classes to make up their 60 credits. And these aren't things that require a lot of academic thinking or critical thinking or writing. Or I think these are skills that you really do want when you have somebody who is in a position to remove somebody's liberty. And I don't think we discuss that enough. The role of a police officer in society isn't just to chase the bad guy down. They have the right to remove most of your constitutional rights right there. It's a heavy weight. And I think a lot of people don't understand the importance then of having somebody in a position who can exercise that authority, who knows what that authority actually is and who understands the weight and the gravity of it. You know, I worked with not even a handful, a lot of veterans, a lot of really good people. I worked with a lot of officers who actually did have the college experience, and then I worked with some who didn't. They started doing in-person psychologicals for everybody, and I think that that needs to be extended. I think one of the other issues we are having is temperament. Any other position where you're in a position of authority, where you need to exercise that authority over other people, there should be an extensive background and psychological evaluation to ensure that you're in a position to exercise that judicially equally, that you have a concept of what that is and that there's nothing in your background, domestic violence or any type of substance or alcohol abuse, that would hamper your ability to actually do that. I mean, I know that we have hired people with DUIs on their record. It's happened in the past. Does that mean that they shouldn't be given some type of a chance? Somebody may have had a substance abuse problem and it's better, but it's part of what you evaluate. You have to look at that and that should lead you to other things and say, okay, is there some other issue I need to look at? That would prevent this officer from exercising their
0: duties appropriately. In that vein, are there ways that the NYPD keeps up to date with a hired officer, providing them updates that maybe their training didn't cover initially?
1: They have the patrol guide. The patrol guide is the NYPD Bible. And it's just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages. It's all the different department guidelines as to when you could do this, what the order is of an arrest or who you should contact and what scenario. That's constantly updated, but those aren't laws. So if you put a ban, if you tell somebody not to do something in the patrol guide, that's a procedural thing that you can get in trouble with the department for, but not legally. It doesn't attach any legal jeopardy. So when they talked about banning chokeholds, it was banned in the patrol guide, but it wasn't banned as part of a matter of law, which is why they were so upset when they actually put that into the law. Now, They did include some language that as a lawyer, I understand why they were having some problems with it because they were talking about applying any pressure to the diaphragm, the diaphragm extends down anatomically. So yes, they were like, I can't put my hands on them. I think that there is the letter and the spirit of the law and the spirit of the law is don't choke anybody out. And if you cannot perform your job without the ability to choke somebody, (laughs) then I think there's a problem. I want to actually go back to my Michigan training. The other thing they spent a lot of time on was self-defense tactics. And that was all holds, how to hold somebody safely. And that's something that they spend time in the NYPD Academy on. I don't think that they spent as much time building up, again, that muscle motor memory of what happens. Because many times as a cop, nothing will happen for eight hours. And then in 30 seconds, you're in the middle of it. That happens. So what happens in those 30 seconds that you fall back on your training and that you're able to be safe yourself and make sure that the other person that you are restraining is you're doing so safely? These are things I think where we can spend more time
0: evaluating how they're training the officers to do just that. And moving a little bit to the culture, what happens when an officer makes an arrest? What else happens after that and what are they trained to do? And what are the repercussions for making an arrest?
1: You have to look at it from the two aspects. You have the person who's making the arrest and the person who's getting arrested. So first of all, you have to determine the officer on scene the police officer, not a sergeant or a boss, when they're first there and their first point of contact, they're the ones that determine, okay, I'm going to arrest one. They call it one under. You call on the radio and say, I have one under central, send over a boss. And you have to determine that a crime is violated. It's a felony or a misdemeanor, somebody with a complaint or violation in front of you. You're allowed to arrest for those. Now, what happens though, is that then you call a boss over, the sergeant, sometimes a lieutenant will show up. And they're the ones that confirm and approve the arrest. Now, this is where the problem is, is that it's a little more obvious this year, but it's always happened where a sergeant comes over who doesn't understand, or maybe it's not a good arrest. And how often are the police going to say, whoops, my bad, take the cuffs off and let the guy go. Now, as a point of law, that's what should happen. If you make a bad arrest on the street, what they say is, oh, I'm going to bring it to the house, bring it to the precinct, and we'll just work it out there and the ADA will cut him out or something. But we need to kind of evaluate as part of the culture cops don't want to back down. It's seen as a sign of weakness. But what happens then is that you take an initial mistake, and because you want to be perceived as weak, you carry that mistake all the way. And so all of a sudden, a person is arrested who should not be arrested, who didn't break the law, who didn't violate anything. And they're booked, and they're fingerprinted, and they're photographed, and maybe they get a desk appearance ticket. But at that point, it doesn't matter. They have to go through the system in some way. And I've seen that. I've seen uh, mistaken identifications on the scene where we're positive that The guy standing next to me didn't do it, but then I was ordered to arrest the person and take them in and told that if it really wasn't him, that the DA would worry about it. And that's, now I'm arresting this person. So what does it mean for that person? When you arrest somebody, that person may lose their job because you just arrested them. They may have kids at home who do not have anybody to watch them now. They may need to be in class and they cannot be in class. There is a whole other side to this. We kind of look at people who get arrested as just, oh, they just go through the system. They have lives. They do think, they have families, they have kids.
2: Can I just ask, if they decide at the scene, this person was not properly arrested, we're going to let them go. Are there legal repercussions that come back on the department for that? Are they facing? No, I wouldn't think
1: so. If the officer has a reasonable suspicion or even probable cause that this person did a crime, you can detain them. You have a right to detain them for investigation purposes and you can put them in cuffs. And if a boss came over later and said, no, no, this is wrong and let them go. There's no repercussion for that because that was part of the investigation. It was investigated on scene. They look at the amount of time that a person is detained as to what qualifies as a reasonable time. And that can change depending on the circumstance. There's X amount of minutes for let's say a car stop. You can pull somebody over in a car and it's okay to wait for a canine if you suspect there are drugs there for them to sniff the car. That's a reasonable amount of time. They determine that in court cases. But you can hold them for five hours at the side of the road and not do anything. There's a limit to that. So I think that most arrest scenarios It would be pretty quick anyway. I mean, once you've put cuffs on somebody, usually a sergeant's either there or a boss comes shortly to say, okay, fine, what do you have? Let's go. But again, we have to get into the mindset then that we need to evaluate and have, especially our frontline bosses, our sergeants and lieutenants, have to really know the law and know what is an appropriate arrest and what's not. And if it is not,
0: they need to cut them loose. Yeah, which is weird because during this past summer, I mean, there were lots of arrests and it seemed like there were a lot of sergeants at the front of those lines.
1: There was actually a lot of white shirts. I don't know if you saw that. Those are the ones leading the charge. That's the rank of lieutenant or above has a white shirt. They don't do any of the paperwork, so I don't think they care about who gets arrested. I saw them leading the charge, literally, in a lot of these cases. And I think that a lot of the blame for what happened this summer, because I've spoken to cops who were there at those protests, especially rookie cops. I spent a lot of time this year talking to the rookie cops who were at the protests at Barclays and in the city. They were ordered to do what they did, Period. They don't have a choice. When you are a police officer, it is a strict hierarchy. It is a paramilitary organization. You are saluting your officers, your superiors, and you cannot tell a sergeant or any rank above you, no. You cannot defy any orders. an instant suspension on the spot. You lose your gun and shield. You go home, the call duty captain, it's over. The culture is that it's a paramilitary organization and that and one, one of the instances, and again, I have to strain to remember it, but years ago, there was a police officer who was ordered to arrest a homeless man for trespassing. Right? But the officer was like, this is a homeless man on the steps of a thing, you know, just he didn't want to do it. And he got suspended and it went pretty far, especially during all the bike cops arresting were pushing and then they were arresting a lot of these people. It wasn't the police officers who were ordering these arrests. The ones on the front line were being told what to do by the supervisors in the back. They said, take these, take that. They pointed people. That was it. Because they're the ones who are approving the actions and actually directing the actions of all that. So a lot of the problems this summer had to do with the uh, bosses having a complete and utter disconnect with what to
2: do. Well, and that's something that actually, unfortunately, is starting to carry online. The PBA, the SBA, some of the posts that they do, they're not trying to de-escalate anything at all. It's like they're trying to rile up the police union members.
1: Well, they're trying to say it's us versus them. Patty Lynch, he was the president of the PBA when I was hired back in '02. Uh, I mean, I don't know the last time he was on the street. That, that is a big problem. I mean, SBA, they've gone f- full QAnon. I have no idea what they're doing. But the problem is, is that these are, these are supposed to be unions, right? I'm a very pro-union guy. I belong to the PBA. I get my dental and my vision through them. I still get the retiree newsletters from them, which are incredibly inflammatory, <laughs> trying to give me a heart attack. They They don't advocate as a regular union. It's like what you said. They're basically culture warriors at this point, trying to rally the troops on their side for an us versus them, we'll show them kind of a thing. And it's not just not helpful, it's damaging the situation to a point where it's almost unrepairable. I mean, there needs to be a major reformation, not only of the training of the department and how the department structures itself when it comes to different scenarios, but the police unions right now don't function as unions at all. There is a a blanket protection of all officers, regardless of what they've been, uh, which doesn't help good cops who get in trouble later on because they get lumped in. I mean, they still defend cops who did the indefensible years later, and it's upsetting. And again, there's not a lot that a rank-and-file officer such as myself could do about it.
0: It's interesting because the union seems to be acting less as a union fighting for workers' rights and seemingly more as like a historic society establishing a culture where it's like, these are our members. We have this illustrious history. Has that been what you experienced?
1: Absolutely. And it's it's also been an incredibly non-diverse history that they talk about. I mean, if you look at the upper echelon of the PBA, it's all white men. Until very recently, they were all white men. SBA as well. And it's very frustrating that they're perpetuating a stereotype and a culture of a department that's functioned a certain way The police department is one of those jobs where you have generations of families working in it. You know, my father, my grandfather was there, but the job is different. The job is fundamentally different. Yes, you will have crime and you will need to have law enforcement, but how you actually function within a community, that has changed. And we're dragging them into the present. They are spitting and kicking and wanting to do things the way it was. I don't know if you've seen a lot of the posts from everybody. They're like, just let them do their job. Let them just go out there and take care of things. We own the streets. they're ours. I've heard this language before. When Giuliani uh, unleashed street crime unit, I don't know if you remember that, SCU, no. that was their motto. We own the night. And there were, I don't know how many complaints filed against them for violation of rights. Everybody says, well, that's what needed to get done. But we don't need to do anything that is going to violate people's rights across the board and more specifically violate only certain populations' rights. Because that was the other problem of where they're directing a lot of these heavy-handed tactics and ignoring wholesale crime that is taking place in front of them in
0: neighborhoods that have a I know a wider tinge and that's where when people say oh we can't reform we can't reform the NYPD has been changed dramatically seemingly every 20 to 30 years compstat i guess we're at our uh, like 20 year moment right now originally that was supposed to help make crimes more transparent But it seems to have become something now that has been factored into this kind of oppressive equation where they know how to juke those numbers. And have you seen that happen? Yeah.
1: Now, the only number you can't juke, as you so aptly put, is the homicide rate. And so, a good indicator of a lot of the crimes that are on there is look at the homicide rates and whether or not they go up or down. Now, this year, shootings have gone up dramatically. And that is something that does need to be addressed. And there's, a whole bunch of people describing a whole bunch of scenarios as to why that's happening. But a lot of the other major crimes this year, the major crimes index have actually gone down. We've seen an increase in homicides and an increase in shootings and that does need to be addressed. But again, it's now we have one side that just says, "Well, just unleash the cops." Literally, like we're holding them on the chains here and if I could only just let them go, they would just take care of it. But how? How are you going to do that? Are you going to move in like an army and occupy certain areas? What do you want to do? They got rid of anti-crime unit this year. The department was very upset about that. What I had seen personally was that anti-crime was a unit that was filled with people who were way too green, way too young, put them in plain clothes. A lot of the different scenarios, including Eric Garner, this happened through anti-crime units and rookies in anti-crime units who didn't have enough knowledge of either their community or of policing in general to make good judgment calls.
2: Actually, that's a really good point. You know, we've had community policing now for a while and it's hard to kind of get a sense of how people feel as far as its success or,
1: you know, every 20 years they try to change up how they do community policing. I'm a big fan of the beat cop. I was a beat cop. I think that one of the ways that police, when they serve, get to know a neighborhood is to be out of the car and on a foot and walking around, not a fixed post, but an actual meeting every single business. I was up in the 2-3 precinct in East Harlem. And when I was a beat cop, I mean, I was in and out of every single business every single day and talking to school kids coming home and the parents that would meet them and the woman who was selling mangoes at 110th and 3rd and everybody at the Pan Caliente. So I knew everybody. That builds better relationships because you start to see them in the community as people. You start to see how they're all connected. Who's doing their homework in the shop because their mother's working. And you start to really get a feel for where you actually are. They have uh, the NCO program now, and uh, you know, I've heard mixed things about it. My personal experience is that I don't see them. I hear about them. I hear that they have neighborhood meetings every once in a while. I don't remember ever meeting the NCOs from a neighborhood personally or seeing them. If there's a cop walking up and down 86th Street, that would be much more helpful than having an NCO unit. That's me personally. There are other ways to do it, though. We have a whole community affairs bureau who wears a nice, softer blue shirts who make it look less militaristic and threatening. I'm being serious. Community policing is much more than just going out and showing up for a parade.
2: Well, and I think that there are a lot of people who are very closely connected to the NYPD in the area we live in. But it seems to me that there's a lot of opportunity to have people who already maybe live in a community be the ones out doing that kind of work. And maybe that's even a step further.
1: Can be. You know, we keep coming back to culture. I worked with some awesome cops. I really did. And there were some cops who shouldn't have been cops that I also worked with. But overall, what they tried to really push, and this came a lot from the old school guys as well, was this real culture that we're not part of this place, that we're separate from the rest of the city. And it was very frustrating because if you don't take ownership in it at all, like you said, if you're living here, that's one thing, but then they tend to be isolated in different neighborhoods where they're not going to be seeing the rest of the city. It's difficult to figure out what. The best remedy is. I personally believe that most new cops should live in the city, at least temporarily. You can live in the uh, five surrounding counties. You can live in Putnam and Orange. You can live in Suffolk and Nassau. But if you live 70 miles from the city and you've never been here, you might not appreciate the area that you are serving as much as if you were part of the city at some point. It's contractual. They're not ever going to turn around and say that you can live in the city at any point. Some of the unions, I think DC 37, some of the other ones for the city, the administrative aides have a two-year residency requirement, and then you can move to one of the other ones. But you just don't want to feel that the police that are coming to your house, that they view you as other in any way, shape, or form. And that's what I'm talking about, raising the level of professionalism of the entire department. The police aren't going anywhere. We're not abolishing the police. Uh, It's not going to happen. We need a functioning police department. But it doesn't mean that we can't look at the department and say, okay, what shouldn't they be doing though? Because maybe they're not trained to do so, Well, maybe it's more of a social service. And so there are a lot of different things the department does currently that we could look at and say, you know what, this is really a waste of resources. Uh, And we can shift that more to uh, enforcement and prevention.
2: We've discussed in the past, the kinds of services that could be divested from the police. and I know for example, Right now in Denver, there's a project where they have a emergency services response van responding to mental health crises. What kind of training do cops have in de-escalating mental health crises (laughs) that they should be out doing that?
1: I I heard from the newer officers that they did do a lot more with de-escalation, the training. My training personally was a joke. I learned something called verbal judo. That was the actual name of it. And I had a little insert card that I had to put in my memo book that discussed certain phrases, phraseology, to try to get people to calm down. It was a joke. Now, I had years of training prior to this working with mental health response. So I was often called to actually go handle a lot of these cases. They're doing an experimental case right now, or experimental run, where they're using responders who are actually trained in mental health care to respond to the non-emergent mental health calls. Those are ones, I guess, they're not armed. But that actually does still leave a very large segment of mental health responses where they may be armed or they may pose a threat and you still have an opportunity to de-escalate because it is not a crime what is going on. It is a medical call. It is a medical call that may be dangerous, but there's a lot of different ways to respond. It's not just non-lethal response like, oh, I'll hit him with a beanbag. That's not what I'm talking about. Time and distance. Is Some of our greatest friends, there is no rush to take care of any of these calls. When you look at the end point of saying, what's my goal here? My goal is to safely take that person away from that scenario, right? Either disarm them in some way and get them to a facility where they're going to be treated. That's goal. So looking at a goal like that, all of a sudden, your approaches to how to take care of it should change. And I think that they're slowly changing. I'm, a lot of people are talking about jokingly, oh, these guys are going to show up. What are they going to do? Well, they have more training than I did. I've known and worked with a lot of mental health care workers and social workers, and they know what they're doing because this is their wheelhouse. That's what they're supposed to do. And so in scenarios where they're unable to respond alone, they can always be part of the solution then. So you can have enforcement there if it turns dangerous and it becomes necessary. The secondary issue to everything, you can hire better, you can train them better. There's also no uniform training once they actually get out of the precinct, by the way. That's a whole other issue you can have better updates in criminal law so that they actually know it better and but the other half of this is actually addressing what kind of education system do we have in the city what are opportunities for jobs and employment and vocational and everything else that is creating some of the higher crime areas you have a downturn in the economy crime goes up that's just a the natural there's a cause and effect there and that's well documented throughout pretty much all of human history so when you don't place as equal large communities And they have, as I said, disparate outcomes when it comes to their education, when it comes to the resources that even go in there for education, for their health, for their public safety. There's the whole criminal justice system, and then there's everything else that kind of pours into that criminal justice equation. I think one of the things we saw this summer, that it wasn't one thing, and that could be overwhelming for people who are not a part of it and have to suffer at the hands of it every single day. Because I can safely retreat to being, you know, a white male full of privilege. And I don't have to experience that every day. But other people, this is their life. Their life is is that they're more likely to die if they give birth in a hospital in New York City because they're Black. Or they're not going to have the same education outcomes because they're Black or Latino. And that's fundamentally unfair. And it's something that is part of everything. And it, it can be overwhelming to look at this.
2: One of the interesting things that we talked about when you talk about what appropriate services should the police be providing There are a lot of folks, especially in the transit community, who feel maybe traffic cops shouldn't be part of the police force.
1: They used to be called brownies. I don't know if you remember way back in the day. They were separate from the NYPD. And they were merged into the Traffic Enforcement Agency. And they are under the same umbrella, but they're separate. And they're responsible only for parking summonses. They can't issue any moving summonses or moving violation summonses. They can direct traffic, things like that. The precincts themselves, police are obviously authorized to write parking summonses, moving summonses, things like that. The problem is, is that both units seem to rely on generating a certain threshold of revenue per year as part of the budget. They count on this revenue. But what you're doing then is you're counting on people to have to pay. That leaves almost no room for discretion for anybody to say, you know what, this person may not deserve this ticket in some way. Moving violations are important. I know that there was a discussion with, I think, Attorney General Tis James was talking about not having police stop cars for moving violations. and I completely disagree with that. There's an actual need for that. You do have people who are DWI, who are suspended licenses, who are creating a hazard. And you do have a lot of people who do have drugs and guns in their cars. And this is an important legal tool. Now, how they do those stops, that's a whole different constitutional discussion. But the right to do so, I think, should remain with police. I think they should have the right to keep pulling cars over.
0: If I remember correctly, that was one of the reasons the Brownies got eliminated, is that no one treated them with any respect. And they were consistently ignored. And the target of violence, often because the kind of stops they were initiating were against people's cars, which people have this, it's part of my body kind of vibe.
1: Again, this is prior to electronic tickets, but I mean, a book of tickets was 20 20. And they were expected to get a couple of books of tickets a day. It was expected that you generate this revenue, which means you find it anywhere and leaves you almost no discretion to not issue that summons. And so you're generating a lot of revenue where individual cases aren't, these people don't frankly deserve this. A lot of the times they're unable to pay the summons, which then turns into other fines that are levied against them, especially now. Who can afford to pay rent at this point, especially this year? And all of a sudden, you're asking people then to pay a $35 ticket can amass, I don't know how many fines if you can't pay it right away. And they're very hard to contest as well. Discretion has a lot to do with both the traffic and with the police enforcement in general. I think one of the things that they don't allow themselves to do is use discretion, is to say, you know what? Yes, you may have violated this law, or you may have went through that stop sign. But that does not automatically equate to me issuing the summons or placing you under arrest for the thing that you did. I'm talking real low level offense stuff. I remember one of the things I saw, it was a criminal court summons, drink in public. That was a very common thing. And you can go out and you can hammer people with these tickets left and right. But I remember when I was a beat cop and I would be walking and approaching and I would see a couple of people drinking, they would see me and they would hide it and they would put it away. And to me, that was that was an acknowledgement that I actually had some authority at all. And, I, and a lot of the times I just asked them if they could just go somewhere else and they complied. It's not hard if you talk to somebody and you treat them like a human being and, you know, you ask them something, you don't have to tell them, oh, what is that? And start kicking over bottles and start writing summonses. You can ask people to do things, you know, guys, you're being a little bit loud. Could you move over here? That's it. We want to be safe. We also do want to feel safe, but how do we achieve that? ends? Do we achieve it with heavy handed tactics that seem tone deaf to what the entire city is, is calling for?
2: And can we achieve it so that everyone feels that way?
1: That's the challenge. But I think that part of that then is saying, OK, well, the NYPD can't have one approach to how it does everything. There are smaller precincts for a reason. You can break down and start identifying regions where, you know what, this strategy works here and this works better over here. And that's fine. And I think in such a large organization, the NYPD, that kind of change is difficult because they're not all about customizing their their care, uh, as it were, and I think it's more about they have uniform policies and this is the way it is, and we're gonna exercise that policy throughout the department. And that makes change difficult on a realistic level, on a level that you'll see on a day-to-day basis. It's like I said, the police aren't going anywhere, and I know that there was a lot of calls for a lot of different things, but there are real meaningful changes that can be made from the training and from the policies and how they actually react through community affairs and things like that, that are going to make people feel safer in a lot of different communities. And that has two different meanings to a lot of different groups, right? Feeling safe means that not just, oh, I'm worried a burglar is going to come into my house. Oh, I'm going to get shot. That's a big difference.
2: There was something you said a minute ago about different approaches in different neighborhoods. And it's interesting because that actually really reminds me of a field program in a political campaign in some ways where you have a decentralized structure by which you can acknowledge different neighborhoods. How centralized is the NYPD and how are things managed at citywide scale?
1: You know, I'll go from the precinct up. So you have a precinct that covers a certain area and then you have a borough command. Each precinct in a borough will report to that. Now, Brooklyn North and Brooklyn South is divided. Manhattan North, Manhattan South. Staten Island is one borough. And so the borough has a chief, and the chief is responsible then for what they call the borough, but let's say just Brooklyn South. So you've got the commanding officer of that precinct who reports to the borough. And the borough chief does have latitude to affect strategy for that area. But again, it becomes a question of how disconnected they are from what actually is happening because what happens on the street gets filtered through a lot of different levels before it gets to the borough. I think we've been desensitized by a million years of cop shows, it makes us not recognize the real gravitas of what it is that they do and what they're capable of doing under their authority.
2: What I've encountered over and over and over again, when I talk to people who are concerned about the way that this kind of reform would impact the MIPD, they say, you know, what about the 70s? What about going back to the 70s? Or, you know, this the city was falling apart, you know, when Giuliani came in. I find those conversations very discouraging because the heavy handedness with which those solutions were practiced.
1: I want to tell you a real brief, <laughs> a real brief story. I went through Police Academy in Michigan because I was hired by a police agency out there. And my final interview is a much smaller police department. It was a public safety department, actually. So I had to take a fire test, too. I was going to go to Fire Academy right after Police Academy. I was with three captains I had sitting across a table from me. And I had worked in EMS and I knew most of them, but one of them I knew particularly well. And this captain said to me, he said, Michael, I've known you for about eight years. I think you're a really good guy. I think you've got a great bedside manner. I think you talk really well. I think you'll be a lousy cop. I don't think you're an ass kicker. Prove me wrong. He was the only one out of the three who voted against hiring me. I spoke to an inspector afterwards who said that he viewed cops as needing to have that ass kicking factor. And he didn't like the fact that I talked, (laughs) that I had. You know, that I did interact more, I think, than he wanted to. And they saw that as a liability when I was in my precinct as well. A lot of people thought I talked too much. And I, I remember telling people, I don't get paid extra to fight. If I could talk somebody into handcuffs as opposed to throwing them on the ground, then that's what I'm going to do. Again, what's the end goal of something? If the end goal is to place somebody in custody, how do we do it with the least amount of force? And then how do we recognize ourselves then that once that person is in custody, that game is over, that's it. A lot of it comes down to who you're hiring, comes down to training, comes down to discretion. But it really comes down to just being more aware of what your job is, what your role is in the community. I think that's the part that's really been separated. We were reminded every single day about our long history in the NYPD. We've been here for 150 years, 170 years. And this is how we've done things in our tradition, tradition, tradition. And it is traditional. And that's great. But that doesn't mean you need to police the way you did back in the 1930s or even the 1970s or 80s. We don't want to go back to that. And we have an opportunity, a very rare opportunity. Finally, this year, you have a whole entire population that has been dealing with this their entire lives. But a larger amount of the country, I think, opened their eyes and started hearing them for the first time and saying, OK, I get it now. I'm seeing what you're talking about you can't let that opportunity go away. This can't be something else that's going to just kind of pitter away and it's just going to be a reality again for some of us and it could be meaningfully ignored by others because it doesn't affect me. And that's the other difficult challenge is enacting change, but making sure that it sticks because it's not overnight. If you do something, if you change how you're handling mental health response, if you change having cops in schools, there's gonna be an adjustment period. There's gonna be a very unhappy, weird, bumpy adjustment period. But again, what are your long-term goals? And they're achievable and it's workable, but it takes a lot of commitment from a lot of people who get paid a
0: lot more than I do. (laughs) So that's incredibly succinct. Mike, I just want to ask the last and hardest question, which is what do you think that people in our neighborhood, just people across the city who aren't as well-versed in the internal structure of the NYPD what would you ask that they ask for? What meaningful reforms do you think could be maybe passed this year in Albany that we should be getting up in arms about and really asking for? What are some of your prescriptions?
1: I mean, one of the things that they did pass was bail reform, which is really misunderstood by a lot of people as to why that was important. The PBAs were working overtime to try to sell you that bail reform is what's responsible for all crime, which absolutely the data does not bear it out at all. The release from Rikers for COVID reasons, those people, the reoffending is so low, it's like 1%. It just doesn't exist. These numbers are fake. It's fake news. (laughs) It's coming from them. Beyond that, we can increase overall, not just NYPD, but statewide, you can increase the amount of training that is required and the type of training for the basic police curriculum in the state, right? So right now you're only required to do I think the basic is five hours or maybe eight hours of community policing. That's it. That's all you're allowed with no practicum required. A lot of these different changes when you're doing training is that you should be passing these sections of your academy or you shouldn't be passing, period. And you shouldn't be continuing. We can't have people limp along here and get the bare minimum or fail certain vital sections, including firearms training or criminal law or criminal procedure or all these other things. They need to pass all these significantly (laughs) with a high degree of confidence. People are going to ask for different things. All of them across the board, though, want a more responsive department that hears them. And so increasing ways beyond the monthly community meetings, of which usually only a few regular people attend, and leaving the precinct and really forming these meetings out in the community, making them way more accessible, making the department more visible and transparent so that you do know how it's run. You do know the organization of it, the history of it, beyond what's on a website, so that you can actually take ownership in your police department, because it's yours. They serve you. They service your community. Know what it is they do. Know how many units there are. Be able to look these things up and understand how it works and functions in your own community. It's different for every community. And really, as I said, it requires more involvement from both sides. It requires more of an interest of the people who want things from the police department. And it requires a lot more from the police department to actually hear what's going on, because this summer has shown a lot how tone deaf they are to what a vast majority of New Yorkers want from their police department.
2: Well, Mike, thank you so much. You know, that guy might have thought you talk too much. We definitely do not. So thank you. We really appreciate your insight and your being willing to come on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm anytime.
0: And that's our show. Thank you for joining us. You can follow the podcast on social media at Twitter at Radio FreeBR or Facebook or Instagram. You can also check out the show notes at RadioFreeBayridge.org where you'll also be able to access Mike's previous episode on the Congressional Contenders series where he was running for NY11 back in 2018, and that has a lot more information on Mike's background and numerous other things that he cares about passionately, so be sure to check that out. In the meantime, everyone, happy new year. And until next time, stay free, Bay Ridge.